everyone. Welcome to Dairy and Animal Science Podcasts. Welcome to Dairy and Animal Science Podcast. I'm Rose Prine. With us here today is Dr. Terry Atherton, Distinguished Professor of Animal Nutrition and Department Head of Dairy and Animal Science at Penn State. And I might want to add our department's most prolific blogger, and uh, we'll give you the URL of that blog site at the end of this podcast. Also with us today is uh, Dr. Phil Sanger, President of Current Conceptions Incorporated and Professor Emeritus of Animal Science at Washington State University. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Rose. It's great to be here. And Terry, do you want to lead off with a a question? Well, a little perspective. Phil is in town, uh, sponsored by the Hill Endowment, and just gave a seminar talking about new technologies for teaching. And I'll talk a little bit about uh, the spirit of teaching uh, not only folks at Penn State, but, but consumers and people out in the public. And as readers of my blog know, I've spent a lot of time battling the activists who uh, use misinformation and distortion and scare tactics to to scare consumers about what I call biotechnology in the barnyard, attack science in a way that's just shameless and inappropriate. And my view is this is the scientific method is one of the greatest things we ever developed. And the scientific community is sitting here very quiet, passively letting this take place. Phil, what's been well, your observation? Well, I, I absolutely agree. I think there are two things that drive this, and one of them, Terry, is uh, fear. Uh, and fear coupled with ignorance creates a horrible uh, uh, problem because uh, if you're afraid, you tend to believe things that aren't true, and if you're ignorant, you don't know whether they're true or not. And so I see that the, the real problem here is the, the wedge is being put in the crack of people who are basically scientifically incompetent, so they believe anything when it's coupled with fear. The, the uh, reality that I see, and you've captured it well, is that you can scare people in 30 seconds. You can't educate them about science in 30 seconds. Uh, the National Science Foundation has a, does a survey of science literacy each year, and in 2005, one of the questions that was a true-false question, the center of the earth is hot, true-false, and 23% of college graduates that did that survey missed the question. <laughs> so with that, that context, it's hard to go out to talk about complex uh, science methodologies and use the nomenclature that we do. Well, I think therein lies a real problem. Uh, as scientists, uh, as we discussed earlier, um, the end point of our effort is publication in a scientific journal, which is not intended to educate the populace, but intended to bring new concepts to science. But we do not follow up with that scientific uh, information in a, in a palatable form for the public. And so um, what happens is, is because our reward system is totally, at least in academics, is totally based on uh, the, the, the publish, how many papers a person publishes, I think it should be based on, to a degree, uh, how much information he's brought to the lay public 
that is meaningful and they can understand. And that's a whole new uh, requirement that those of us that have been in science for a long time have never been trained or equipped to do. So I think we need to make some initiatives that, uh, uh, and this should come from higher administration, that, that, that more or less force scientists to, to develop uh, their science in a palatable way for, for people who don't understand. And when you look across the landscape of society, it's uh, important that we really do a wonderful job of educating the public. And I think higher education has done a lousy job. And if people are going to adopt new technologies, new biotechnologies, it's really important they understand them. Absolutely. And, and we've got a, a public that doesn't understand agriculture, production agriculture, and they really uh, uh, have, a, as we've talked about, a very low understanding of science. So these activist groups feel that uh, this year they will spend about a half a billion dollars to come up with misinformation campaigns, attack science, attack safe and, and effective production systems that have been shown to be compliant with best practices for animal welfare. This is crazy. Well, uh, you, you know, I think part of the problem, Terry, comes from the fact that, that uh, uh, we expect quick fixes, and education is never a quick fix. And this is going to take, uh, this is a generational thing. We need to be getting in the public school system with simple educational strategies for what our food consists of, uh, the science behind how we produce it, and start getting into young people's uh, venues. Uh, and if we are patient enough, uh, we in 10, 15 years will start reaping the benefits of that. The problem is none of us have the patience to to take that route, and there's no reward system to provide the public education system with good information. And that's one of the things that I'm very excited about what we're doing in our company is to develop uh, strategies to bring information that people can understand and appreciate its relevance way outside the, the traditional university community. Uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping that I can get university people to think that way, but I doubt if I can. Phil, if you could look into your crystal ball, what do you see science education being in 20 years? Or, or maybe I should say, what could it look like at, in K-12? through Well, I think, I think it could look very exciting if we could muster the resource somehow or another to uh, put uh, animations and simple explanations and analogies of how science works in front of, of kids and how it relates to animal agriculture, medicine, health, nutrition, and all of that, which generally when we teach science uh, in K through 12, especially uh, in high school, uh, it's very uh, rigidly controlled. It's in, not much of it is relevant. Boring. And boring and threatening because the, for some reason a scientist seemed to think that we have to make stuff really hard so that you earn the badge of courage when you get an A in chemistry. Well, I'd like to interject a question at this point. Um, uh, I um, have uh, communicated a, a great deal with a, a number of researchers here at Penn State who are doing a considerable amount of research in the online learning area. And one of the areas that they are spending a great deal of time focusing on is actually using the gaming environment as an online learning vehicle. Everything from role-playing games, uh, problem-solving games, to even simulations such as Second Life. And I'm curious to know what sorts of uh, inroads your, your 
company has made in that area of gaming. Are you looking into that, uh, especially as a vehicle for the younger students, but college students as well? Uh, to this point, we have not because we focused almost entirely on uh, the higher educational venue just because I'm familiar with that. Um, but I do agree that we have to match our techniques uh, educationally to the social practices that young people are doing now and to not adjust our content delivery uh, in that way is a uh, head in the sand. And I see a lot of educators um, uh, being hyper-conservative on this, uh, and I, I disagree with that philosophy. So I would applaud the approach that your people must be taking as to investigating uh, uh, current recreational uh, approaches that the kid is already used to doing mechanically and infusing the proper uh, educational notions in that and I think it will work. I mean people like to be entertained. I don't care whether in a classroom or on TV or in the, uh, online. Mm -hmm. People like to have a good time and for some reason we have created this this monster some so to speak that uh, it's not cool to have a good time when learning science. But there's, I think, an element, Phil, that higher education, I think, in your seminar, you, you talk, refer to it as uh, a bureaucracy that's entrenched in muck and mire. Yes, I did. <laughs> and, and, and I have used the analogy, it's sort of like having a super tanker in a pond. you got a boat in water, so that's the right relationship. But the boat isn't going to go very far, very fast. And then the idea of building a bigger pond is a bit treacherous and difficult. And downsizing the boat without sinking is a real trick. And therein lies an element that really constrains, I think, what could be some innovative strategies that would be enlightening for getting kids excited about science. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think the boat in the pond analogy, when I talk about uh, delivering content on, online, uh, right now we treat the boat as, a, uh, as the entity, and that would be the university. But I think private enterprise is going to force the university to make a bunch of speedboats. Or they're going to sink. Or, or the big boat is just going to sink in the pond. There better be in, in pri private enterprise, yeah. uh, and I hope I'm part of this movement, uh, is a speedboat compared to uh, the, the big boat in the pond. And so um, I can move faster than you can, even though that I've been in, I've, I've been in this business for 30 years, so I know how fast you can move. Mm -hmm. Not very fast. But now, in a, in a private enterprise sector, I can deliver content, as you saw a while ago, uh, that is quite speedy. Now, it's expensive, so I have to figure out how to pay for it. But, uh, yeah. You know, the, the, the transition I'll use as far as using speed and technology to communicate, this what I refer to as the range war, which is the battle between anti-scientists and the evil forces of the empire versus <laughs> the pro-science side, this is a battle that's moving at the speed of the Internet. They have very sophisticated technologies. They don't have to support research. They just fabricate this stuff and, and use sound bites like factory farm and industrial farming and hormones to scare people. And on the other side of this, you have scientific societies, and their approach is, well, we'll have a board meeting, and we'll convene a group to, to write a white paper, and that'll take a few months to get put together. Then this will pass back to the board, and they'll look at it and throw holy water on it and bless it, and then they'll, they'll publish it in a journal. Now, that is not going fast. Then when it hits the journal process, 
the publication process, you're talking about another six to 12 months. Well, by the time that sees the light of day, it's too late. Too late. Too dang late. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and this is why my comment to, to Dr. Bumrocker in the, the, the seminar is, um, I think, appropriate. Uh, higher education and traditional science education venues has operated without competition for so long that that there's been no challenge and the, our only competition is is uh how much money we can get and usually that's based on how loud a noise you can make when you rattle the tin cup <laughs> <laughs> now your travels uh, throughout the united states and and your company uh interacting with the universities this tin cup rattling is a common observation i'm guessing is that right oh absolutely absolutely and rather than developing strategies, let me give you an example here. And I, I alluded to that um, uh, in my seminar. If there are 20-plus Commonwealth universities associated with Penn State, the or campuses, campuses, yeah, the yep. campuses, and if they all teach, uh, let's say, Bioscience 101, which I'm pretty sure they do, then it makes absolutely no sense that somebody in the uh, controlling seat would not edict that, listen, we're going to pull $3 million out, we're going to develop the best Bioscience 101 course in the land. We'll pay for that by cost savings at home, and we'll, we'll market that to any university who wants to buy the Penn State University Bioscience 101. That's a great idea. And at the same time, you, don't, you, you eliminate the need to have 20 or 22 different people teaching the course at variable skill levels right. across the, uh, and the system. Levels. That's right. Yeah. So, so that's the kind of competition I'm talking about, and and when Penn State or Washington State or whatever university uh, you want to talk about decides that they want to go big time, they want to provide reproductive physiology online to the world. That university will make money, they will become quite famous, and they will educate a ton of people, and their faculty to develop this course will be recognized over the planet. I am totally exasperated that universities cannot see this opportunity and spend the money. Bill, have you had any success uh, working with universities on a hybridized course delivery approach as a way to turn the boat around, um, at least incrementally, um, a combination of online information and, and classroom lecturing? Has that helped? I, to I haven't had any roads? direct experience, but I think, uh, uh, Rose, I would say the question that came up about the, the laboratories is a way of hybridizing uh, automatically, keeping face-to-face -face, uh, and mentoring uh, abilities in the hands of the faculty, but transmit the basic information very rapidly and very accurately through the technology that uh, we talked about in the time-compressed animated uh, approach. So you would envision a technology that, that would extend beyond the ivory gates that, that school kids or consumers in their living room Absolutely. could learn about hormones and, and there's a battle going on about recombinantly dried bovine somatotropin. There's some in the dairy industry that are using marketing campaigns that differentiate good milk versus bad milk by not containing recombinant yeah. bovine somatotropin. You go talk to a lot of folks in, in society and hormones a buzzword that scares them and and I try to communicate that hormones are part of life. We've got thousands of them in our body, and protein hormones are no problem whatsoever. But a lot of people just don't understand. And, and, you, and this comes back to the basic premise is that um, 
if if we linked science education to current issues, and if you want to talk about RBST, we would instantly get people's attention and teach them what a protein is at the same time. That's right. And the next time some issue comes up, they understand a protein. And, and so I think we're missing these controversies. Uh, are are troublesome, all right, but they are creating a huge opportunity for us to get right into the public in a hurry if we just spend a little time innovating and uh, uh, using these these uh, flash terms to build a case on, and people will then learn science by default. So how would how would you tell a consumer what fifty picograms of somatotropin is in a in, in a milliliter of milk? How would you tell them what that is, and they could understand it? Well, I would use some analogy like a swimming pool, um, or I would probably uh, I would say, okay, if you can imagine uh, a swimming pool and so many uh, or not golf balls, but ping pong balls floating in that swimming pool, a picogram will rec represent three ping pong balls in the whole swimming pool. That's all that is. Good. So visual representation. Well, absolutely, just like you know. Uh, any any picture is going to beat out numbers and words. In your seminar today, you talked about that, that we evolved as visual learners. That is, we had to recognize images, or right. the saber-toothed tiger ate us. Right. Could, could you talk a little bit about that concept and, and the hypothesis that led to some of the neat technologies you're developing at current concepts? Conception? We'll fix that later. Well, um, the, the um, words and numbers are a modern invention when compared to the total time required for man to evolve where we are today. So words and numbers are uh, a snap of a finger in terms of their existence compared to the total time that we've been on, this, on the earth. So the way we survived up until this time was processing movement, processing images, and usually in the form of danger, and those people who could process that fast survived and reproduced. Those people who could not got gobbled up by the saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> and so then, so why shouldn't we take advantage of that whatever 100,000 or 200,000 years of evolution? Now we have the technology to make an image of anything and animate it so that it, it is an, another form of the saber-toothed tigers chasing you. <laughs> yeah. Except we're going to teach them how uh, bovine somatotrophin is not harmful. You know, simple graphic representation. So there's a there's a, a, a range war that you're engaged in, which is to come up with a new paradigm for learning that's based on visual images that can do that faster and better. Right. And you're really on a on a crusade to to get that planted in higher education. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I also have to make money at it, too, to survive. Yes. So my that. competitive instincts are a little bit different than those in the university. Even though I spent my entire professional life in that university environment. Can you talk a little bit about how you engage the other senses in the technologies that you're using? Um, auditory uh, sense would be incredibly important also. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, so the auditory sense would come across in um, the voiceover. Um, and, you know, if you look at a lot of online things, there's no, there's no, no sounds at all. 
and some of them are not even relevant to the to the to the uh, um, to the topic. So any time you put, and we've tried all kinds of things. One is the human voice. The human face coupled with the human voice is always a good thing, and that's why you kept seeing this young lady show up periodically in the. Now, we also in your lecture. Mm -hmm, yeah, in the in the TCAT, um, we also uh, have employed music. At, at strategic times, uh, so that the, in the auditory sense is coupled with the visual sense, and you, you know that's really powerful. Uh, if you couple auditory, optical, and olfaction, mm -hmm. and let me give you an example there. Um, I can show you a jar of rumen fluid, and hand it to you with the lid screwed on tightly, and you can see, and you can say, well, this is green, and it's kind of got this partially digested hay floating around in there and and you know you kind of know what it is now if I take the lid <laughs> off the jar then you really know what rumen fluid is like so now I've engaged the olfactory sense and so I think there are, it's going to be hard to talk about doing that over line, uh, over uh, online situations but that's where you do the online and couple it with the lab, and you do the hybrid. So when you talk about room and fluid, that student knows, oh, my God, I can smell that without even seeing it. So the more, and tactile senses are important, too. So if you're touching a specimen at the same time you're seeing it, you get a different sensation than if you never touch it at all. And the brain is wired. That, that's all part of the evolutionary process to process uh, your senses are... But the visual sense is without a doubt the most powerful. Without a doubt. Because you cannot survive with tactile only if the saber-toothed tiger is after you. You cannot survive by <laughs> olfactory only if the saber-toothed You have to be seeing that. You know, you're talking about the saber-toothed tiger, and I'll put this in the concept of evolution. Uh, we're living in a time where we've got the greatest... Uh, scientific method system in place as far as doing wonderful exciting science we've got the safest food supply we've ever had in recorded history more people living longer than ever before and yet there's groups out there that are shrieking and trying to scare people and and i've told some folks that i if you could take us back to 1850 and say hey here we are how do we do those folks would be a little disappointed i think because we are jumping at the tiger stripes and and petting the tiger and worrying about the wrong stuff and and wasting a lot of time on issues that are not very pressing in society. I mean, we should be devoting energies to poverty, to infectious disease, how we're going to feed the world in 50 years. There's all and sorts of And education, too, Terry. That's right. I mean, we're, we're losing a grip on education as well. You want to expand on that, but the grip? Well, I the think... The interest in... Societal interest in education is not very high, or not as high as it used to be. Okay. Let me let me put that way. Otherwise, the burden, would, the the tax burden, would keep tuition low, salaries higher, uh, competitive edge for for public school and higher education. In in perspective, when I hear uh, I hear the news that thirty percent of high school kids are not completing high school, uh, that's a that's an astounding social statistic. It, it's remarkable. And that means that we somehow or another are misplacing our values. Uh, and uh, I agree with you 100%. The, the, um, but you know what I think also? And we get pretty well worked up by these, these irrational activist groups. 
But I think if you go read some of the social history, um, that this has always taken place over history. Uh, I don't know if you know that the word spud, referring to the potato, evolved because the spud or the potato is a member of the nightshade family, which was poisonous. Um, is a poisonous plant, for, and I don't know much about it, but apparently make you sick or kill you or something. And when potatoes were first introduced into Great Britain, they caused a great uproar because of this knowledge of nightshade and potato. And the word spud evolved because an activist group said that this, they, they formed this Society for the Prevention of Unsafe Diet, SPUD. Spud. And so, I don't know if this, this, this stuff that we're experiencing now is horribly new in the, in the historical context. I think there's always been disruptors in society. I think we just have to uh, uh, take action to uh, minimize their effect. There's a... We're eating a hell out of potatoes right now. <laughs> Uh, That's right, and and so, but, but at once, one time they were considered unsafe. So it, I don't know if it'll go away, but but I tend to 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 think that this kind of reaction is just typically a function of advanced society, L leisure time, plenty of money, and that comes with the territory. So what do you think drives these groups that attack scientists, the scientific method, and try to scare folks about? technology, biotechnology, and, and they do it in a way where it's it's shaded, for example. You don't hear anybody who has diabetes that's taking recombinant human insulin being upset over that or upheaved. They think this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Parents who have children or have a child with short stature or disease of short stature that takes recombinant human growth hormone to get them close to projected adult height, they think this is wonderful. You take the same science, same technology and uh, do something with animal agriculture, and all of a sudden, you know, there's an element where people are saying the sky is falling. It's crazy. M misplaced values is what I think is the, the... Yeah. It's just misplaced values. And a certain proportion of society will always have misplaced values. Yeah, I think it's up to us to... And I don't like the word fight. I don't think we should fight it. I think what we should do is take steps that are logical steps to minimize the impact. Great. Thank you very much, gentlemen. You're Thanks. welcome. Phil, it's great having you at Penn State for the two days that you're in town. And uh, just a little editorial, uh, Phil was here on faculty for three years in the early 80s. Uh, prior to that, had been at Washington State for eight years and left here and went back to the West Coast. Some would say the left coast, but you're in the upper <laughs> left, so that's different. Uh, anyway, it's great to have you back in town. Oh, and, I'm, uh, I've had a ball. And, and this is our this is our launch of our roundtable podcast. I want to thank Rose and uh, for you listeners out there. If you have any questions, uh, send me an email at tde at psu.edu or look at our blogs that uh, information is posted below. Thanks a lot. This has been a dairy and animal science podcast. For more information, visit das.psu.edu. To see our blog site, go to blogs.das.psu.edu. Thanks for listening.